We're coming to the end of this series, but we have two more episodes. In these last two episodes, I begin to zero in on the cultural minorities, Judeans and Christians specifically, and look at how immigrant groups and cultural minorities could sometimes be the target of negative stereotypes, and that this would impact how these minority associations would be viewed and would play a role in how these minority groups of Judeans and Christians found a place for themselves or did not find a place for themselves in the cities where they lived. Now these next two episodes shouldn't be taken as the be-all and end-all as you can imagine. What we found throughout the discussion and comparison of different associations is that in many respects Judeans could be understood alongside other immigrant associations in the Greco-Roman world and that followers of Jesus, their groups, could likewise be understood in the context of associations in many respects. In many ways, some Christians found a place for themselves and found ways of acculturating to life in the cities of the Roman Empire. So you need to keep that in mind when you're listening to these last two episodes. But nonetheless, still, there were ethnic stereotypes and ethnic rivalries that went on in the Roman Empire. And in many respects, sometimes these cultural minority groups, these Judeans and Christians, could be part of the ethnic rivalries that were taking place. And so this is what, in part, we are seeing when we look at, for example, the accusations against Judeans of uh, committing human sacrifice. And likewise, the accusations against Christians committing human sacrifice, eating the sacrifice, in other words, cannibalism, and that third of a trio of common stereotypes, incest and sexual impropriety. These common stereotypes are what we explore in these last two episodes of the series. And so they give a, a, a glimpse into one negative side of how these groups related to surrounding society, not the only side to it. If you want to explore this particular element of ethnic stereotypes and the negativity that is shown towards these ethnic groups on some occasions, including Christians and Judeans, you'll want to look at my book, Dynamics of Identity in the World of the Early Christians, that has a whole couple chapters about this sort of thing. So I hope you've enjoyed the whole series and enjoy these final two episodes. Do look out for that new book, Associations in the Greco-Roman World, a source book by Baylor University Press that will be out in the fall of 2012, where you can read for yourself and learn more about the associations that existed in the Greco-Roman world and take a look through the actual inscriptions that are translated for you there. So I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we begin with looking at ethnographic discourses, in other words, Greek and Roman descriptions of Judeans as a people and see the stereotypes that arise in that context. In the following episode, we move on to how Jesus followers and groups of Jesus followers and other associations too of cultural minorities could be the subject of similar stereotypes. Okay, so let's move on to something that's closely related to some of what we've been talking about already but also goes in a slightly different direction. In a way, my discussion so far, including the discussion of the Phoenicians and Syrians, and the discussion of the Judeans as immigrant groups, and the whole idea of some tension with society, 
I acknowledged some tension, but was emphasizing a significant degree of integration with some of these Judean immigrants and some of these Phoenician immigrants and that. But even with the Phoenicians touched on the idea of stereotypes and characterizations of Syrians and Phoenicians in that article you read, where we have clear signs and literary evidence that Greeks and Romans who are writing about Syrians will stereotype them in a variety of ways. Sometimes they stereotype them as effeminate, sometimes as good businessmen but underhanded businessmen. There's a set of stereotypes that are attached to Syrians and Phoenicians in literary evidence. But when you look on the ground in the actual epigraphical evidence of what's happening at a particular place, you nonetheless see the Phoenicians and Syrians integrating and participating within society. Same with Judeans. When you look at literary evidence that talks about Judeans by Greeks and Romans or others, when you look at that, you once again see all kinds of stereotypes uh, that suggest tension between Judeans and others. And yet on the ground, when you look at epigraphic evidence and the actual evidence from place to place, sometimes you find Judeans well integrated, who have a seating in the, in the theater was a good uh, example that we had, right? And so we have to be careful not to assume the literary perspective of the elite represents what's going on in the ground everywhere. But it's still important to recognize and acknowledge these stereotypes that you find in elite authors, Greeks and Romans, talking about other ethnic groups and stereotyping them in particular ways. So what we're talking about today is really what you could call ethnography. How ancient people of a particular ethnic group speak about and write about ethnography is writing about another ethnos, another people how they speak about and write about another people, another ethnic group. So Greeks writing about Judeans, Greeks writing about Romans, Greeks writing about Egyptians, Greeks writing about Scythians. So when we look at ancient writers, elite authors, writing about other peoples, we catch a glimpse of how an ethnic group is defining itself by defining the other. So a Greek author from a Greek community whatever city he's from, representing himself, yes, but to some degree being part of that Greek culture he's from, Greek community he's from, representing what that Greek community thinks about Syrians, what that Greek community thinks about Judeans, what that Greek community thinks about Romans. And so this is a process of identity formation on the part of the person describing the other people, on the one hand, right? So we're back into that whole issue of we're looking at identity and how groups express who they are. How individuals, but especially groups, express who they are. And they do so in part by saying who they're not and by describing other peoples in sometimes negative terms. Often thinking of their own group as the superior to the other ethnic group. In terms of identity, what sociologists and anthropologists have noticed, and I've touched on this briefly, people who are stereotyped have to react to the external categorization. So identity is both a group's definition of itself and a group's struggling with and reacting to other people's definition of the group, whether that's an ethnic group or other kind, but we're talking about ethnic groups primarily or cultural minorities in the case of Christians here. 
and so there's that dynamic of identity on both sides, that the, that the stereotypes play a role on, for the person who is stereotyping, play a role in the development of identity for the person stereotyping, and play a role in the development of identity for the people who are stereotyped. So let's look at a couple of examples with regard to Judeans, not necessarily Judean synagogues or associations, but just Judeans generally, before we get into those anti-associations, let's call them, that you read about in that article I wrote. On the one hand, you read Tacitus. On the other hand, you browse through or read Appian online. Uh, Appian is a Greek-Egyptian. His viewpoints only come to us through Josephus, who's a Judean, counterattacking Appian about what he thinks about the Judeans, but nonetheless it reveals things to us, if we're careful about how we read it, regarding the Greek or Roman perspectives here. So in a way, Appian's more of a Greek perspective on Judeans, a Greek from Egypt, and Tacitus is a Roman, right, who writes in Latin. He's a historian. Tacitus, let's look at him first is writing about 110 CE. In the process of writing history, sometimes when he encounters a particular incident in a particular area of the empire, he goes into what that area of the empire is like, topographically, geographically, and what that area of the empire is like culturally, ethnically. And those are the sections in which we get him doing this ethnography that we're talking about, describing other peoples. In the passage you read, is just in the midst of him talking about Judea and about the Judean War and the armies settling into Judea to begin the war is what he's narrating. He then goes on an aside and says, by the way, let me tell you a whole lot about the Judeans. And that's what you read. So what's interesting about how Tacitus has various legends and stories he's familiar with about how outsiders describe Judeans. And often there's some sort of if you know your Bible, there's sort of something that'll ring a bell and you go, well, yeah, this is sort of in the Bible, but not really. It's always a twist on something that in, internally that Israelites and then later Judeans who use that Bible define their own identity using the Bible because it's their scripture, right? And, and so, but they have a very different understanding of those events than what we see from an outsider's perspective, don't we? So here it's the plague came to Egypt because of an oracle from the god Ammon tells uh, King Bacchus there in paragraph 3 of the Tacitus material that the gods told the king to kick the Judeans, uh, kick the, in this case it would be Israelites, right, uh, back in that era, but anyhow, Judeans in the perspective of Tacitus kick them out uh, because they're the cause of, of the plague. That's different than the Hebrew Bible perspective, which is that the Israelites were enslaved to the king of Egypt and Moses was leading an attempt to set them to freedom, and he refused to, and God had to send plague after plague after plague, right? So it's turning that around a little bit, isn't it? Where do we have a little bit of hints of Tacitus, let's say, easing off on the negativity? Let's put it that way. Did anyone notice that? What does he think is positive? There's once in a while, and it's not for long, but it's significant to look at, when he thinks something is positive about them. Well, here's one right at the beginning of paragraph 5. Whatever their origin, so he's just been talking about how bad they are in every respect and they worship an ass and all this type of thing. And whatever their origin, these rites are maintained by their antiquity. Okay, i got to give it to them. No matter how crazy their, and their practices are, they're at least old. Remember that antiquity is a good thing in the ancient world. 
That's a different idea than we have, right? So something being old is by nature better in the perspective of people living in the Roman world. And, and so Tacitus has to admit, well, they've got this going for them. It's really old. But further down in paragraph 5. Now he's doing sort of comparison of different ethnic groups. He's the Roman, assessing the Egyptians on the one hand and the Judeans on the other. And he's now going to say, well, the Judeans are a bit above the Egyptians on this thing. He's going to have a sort of hierarchy of ethnic stereotyping. Uh, who's the best people? Well, the Romans. But when you start going down the line of all the other peoples and below the Romans, the Egyptians will be below the Judeans on this point. The Egyptians worship many animals and monstrous images. The Judeans conceive of one God only, and that with the mind alone. They regard as impious those who make from perishable materials representations of God, gods in man's image. That supreme and eternal being is to them incapable of representation and without end. There doesn't seem to be any negative assessment of that at all there. He's actually expressing a philosophical opinion there. So two little glimpses of hope that Tacus might say something good about the Judeans, and he doesn't say much, does he? Uh, positive. They don't tolerate other people. That they're, they don't like other human beings. Uh, that's a common accusation in some of the literary perspectives on Judeans. It's obviously based on the fact that the Judeans don't fully participate in some of the other activities that other people are doing, and therefore this is an option to start accusing them of not liking other people. Let me just walk you through some of this now that you've uh, got that. In a way, we've touched on some of what I wanted to say. He begins by talking about the war, and then he gets into this, the side about the Judeans and their land. He tries to, first of all, figure out where did the Judeans come from. He's got the word eudaioi, or eudaii in, in Latin. And he's now trying to explain where did that word, what does that word tell us about where they came from? This sort of uh, etymological, false etymology, by the way, false, historically speaking, etymological seeking is very common in ancient writings. You hear the name of a people, then you say, that sounds like this word. They probably eat the thing that the word sounds like, and they must have come from this place or whatever. So that's what he's doing here. It's not any legitimate, historically speaking, origin of the Judeans. But he says the, the, their name sounds like the, the mountain Ida in Crete. So some people say, he says, Tacitus says, some other people have said that they're originally from Crete. And then others say they're originally from Egypt. Others say they're Assyrian refugees. Others say that they're referred to in Homer's poems. Because Jerusalem sounds a little bit like one of the places mentioned in Homer's poems. So all that is not historical information. None of, well, none of this whole passage is historical information, but that sort of gives you the indication right off the bat. Um, even though he's doing, he's doing history, but it's ancient history, isn't it? Ancient history writing has some tiny bit of overlap with modern history writing, but not a lot. He then gets into that plague in Egypt. So the whole idea is that the, he's, he's starting to underline what he's going to uh, focus on throughout. And I'm not sure whether or not, Alyssa, whether you mentioned this, but the reason they get kicked out is because they're hateful towards the gods. Did you notice that? That's what's important about Protagoras in retelling that particular legend. For him, this is another example of what he's going to give several examples, that they're hateful towards the gods. 
I've already explained to you that Judeans could sometimes be accused of being atheists because they reject the gods of others. Even in the Josephus passages we read already, we saw that idea that the Judeans don't worship our Greek and Roman gods. And there's tension about that. He's reflecting it here. So the story is they got kicked out of Egypt because they don't worship the gods of other people. And in fact, the god Ammon commanded that they get kicked out for doing this. Just to underline it further in that same little episode there, Moses by name warned them not to hope for help from gods or men. Moses leading people away from the gods. So the stereotype we're having here, already coming out and gets underlined further as it goes on, is the stereotype that Judeans reject the gods. Judeans are atheists. Now, if we're going to go back to Daniel's comment earlier, now what truth is there in that there's no truth and that Judeans are atheists? It's from the perspective of a Roman. So after that, he continues with Moses in the in next material there. And look what he says about them. And it underlines further about this whole thing is Judeans, the stereotype Judeans, don't accept the gods. To establish his influence over this people for all time in paragraph 4, Moses introduced new religious practices quite opposed to those of all other religions. The Judeans regard as profane, as unholy, all that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that we abhor. You couldn't get a more extreme statement, could you? Everything they do is the opposite of what we do, is Tacitus' statement. Then he's going to outline what the stereotypes that he knows of from other literature he's familiar with. That they dedicated a shrine to an ass. And then they had the explanation of that is that once a few asses guided them somewhere, a few donkeys. So that's a common one to find in some other literature contemporary with Tacitus. The Judeans worship an ass. Obviously no basis in truth whatsoever. This is ethnic stereotyping. And they abstain from pork in recollection of the plague because the pork skin looks like what the plague used to look like in Egypt is the, the idea there that they have frequent fasts and then the seventh day off because of the seven days in the desert instead of 40 days in the desert uh, for a year, sorry, in the desert and is it seven days or seven years here? seven days Yeah. so they wander seven days according to this legend and in the Bible it's 40 years Then we get into this very important passage we should read right through here. Paragraph 5. Whatever their origin, the origin of these rites, these rites are maintained by their antiquity. Here's where he says, okay, the only thing they've got, even though they do everything the opposite of us Romans, and they do abhorrent things, well, at least it's old. They're maintained by their antiquity. The other customs of the Judeans are base and abominable and owe their persistence to their depravity. For the worst rascals among other peoples, renouncing their ancestral religions, always kept sending tribute and contributions to Jerusalem, thereby increasing the wealth of the Judeans. Again, the Judeans are extremely loyal to one another and always ready to show compassion, but toward every other people they feel only hate and enmity. I don't think the Judeans at Miletus who had the seats in the theater had that reputation. There's a difference between reality and what we're reading here, just to remind you. They sit apart at meals and they sleep apart, and although as a race they are prone to lust, sexual depravity. Judeans are sexually depraved in this stereotype here, right? 
That's a common one. And we have it against the Christians too, don't we? In the readings you had. They abstain from intercourse with foreign women, yet among themselves nothing is unlawful. Obviously Judeans accuse the Romans of doing the exact same thing, don't they? When Paul, a Judean, writes about Gentiles, non-Judeans, he thinks of them as a bunch of sexual perverts. So this goes both ways. They adopted circumcision to distinguish themselves from other peoples by this difference. Those who are converted to their ways follow the same practice. So he's indicating God-fearers there that we're familiar with a little bit now. People who adopt Judean customs. And the earliest lesson these people who adopt Judean customs learn is despise the gods, disown your country, and regard your parents, children, and brothers of little account. Reject the gods, reject their country, reject the family. Just to briefly touch on some uh, terminology that comes up later is superstition. He characterizes the Judeans as superstitious. Comes up in paragraph 13 and in paragraph 8. We got our word superstitious from the Latin superstitio, right? Which is the word is being translated superstition here. But it's not superstition in the sense that we think of it. Let me explain briefly what a upper class Roman means when they call something superstition. Pliny called the followers of Jesus. Uh, their practices of superstition as well in that letter that we touched on. Superstitio is there too. Superstitio, superstition, is a Latin term that upper class imperial types use to describe every single practice other than their own. Is the quick way of explaining it to you. It's not that people are particularly superstitious in the sense we use the word. It's just that they're not upper class Romans. That their rituals are different than the upper class Romans rituals. That the gods they worship may be different than the upper class Romans gods. So that's a quick scan through Tacitus's histories. That's paragraph 5, 1 to 13 of Tacitus's histories, writing in 110 CE. We're not reading this to get information about the Judeans. We're reading about, about it to find out how another ethnic group stereotypes the Judeans. And we're going to ask the question and explore it a little bit as we continue. How does that affect issues of identity on the part of the person doing that and on the part of the Judeans? How are Judeans reacting to the accusation that they're lazy because they have the Sabbath? How are Judeans reacting to the story of that they worship an ass? How are Judeans reacting to these things? How does that affect the way they express their identity within the Greco-Roman world? In a way, Josephus gives you evidence of that in connection with his refuting Appian. So let's look at Josephus's um, citation of Appian now. So Josephus, he's the Judean who was involved in the Judean War, who ended up being a friend of the Romans and became a historian and supported by the emperors in Rome. And he wrote all, all his writings are focused on defending Judeans against negative Greek and Roman perspectives. Uh, so he's very apologetic in that sort of rhetorical sense of apology as defense, defensive writings. And now we're in his writing called Against Appian. Appian was a Greek living in Alexandria in the time of Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria is a little bit earlier than Josephus. We've come across Philo. I briefly talked about him when I gave you examples of internal identity expression that overlapped with associations. Remember that? So Appian's 
concurrent with Philo. In fact, Philo was on an ambassadorial team in which the Judeans of Alexandria were making certain claims against the Greeks of Alexandria, and the Greeks sent an ambassadorial team to the emperor, and the, and the Judeans sent an ambassadorial team to, to the emperor. It just happens to be that Appian was involved in the Greek ambassadorial team. Um, he also wrote a whole book about how abhorrent the Judeans' practices are, similar to the sort of rhetoric of what we just saw in Tacitus's writings. Josephus quotes from him regularly, which gives us the actual material from Appian's book. We don't have Appian's book. Josephus gradually works through some of the things he encountered in Appian's book. He then refutes it. Let me walk you through some of the things that were in his book so that we see what these stereotypes are. And some of them will match with Tacitus. So we'll have a Greek and a Roman agreeing that Judeans are X, Y, or Z. Those stereotypes will come up. The first one in the section you read is that they do not worship the same gods as the Alexandrians. So that links up with that whole thing. They reject our gods. Why won't these Judeans honor the gods who protect us? Book two of Against Appian, and then we're in section 73 now. You have that the, uh, Josephus saying that Appian consequently denounces us on the ground that we do not erect statues of the emperors. What does Josephus' response, by the way, which relates to what we said about how Judeans dealt with this? Look a little bit further down in that section. On the other hand, our legislator, uh, not in order to put, as it were, a prophetic veto upon honors paid to the Roman authority, but out of contempt for a practice profitable to neither God nor man, forbade the making of images, alike of any living creature, and much more of God, who, as is shown later on, is not a creature. He's going to go on to later. He did not, however, forbid the payment of homage, honor, of any other sort, secondary to that paid to God, to worthy men. Such honors we do confer upon the emperors and the people of Rome. We don't set up statues of the emperor. We don't sacrifice to the emperor as a god. But we do honor the emperor. And not only that, but when the, when the temple was still functional, there were regular sacrifices on behalf of the emperors. Not to the emperors as gods, but on behalf of the emperors. In paragraph 7, it seems that Appian or separate sources dealt with two other figures, Posidonius and Apollonius Molon. Apollonius Molon, we know, came from Asia Minor, in Western Asia Minor, probably living in the first century BCE. So it may give another geographical perspective from a Greek living elsewhere. This is what Josephus says in citing and, and referring to these other works he's familiar with that were also condemning Judeans. I'm no less amazed at the proceedings of the authors who supplied him with his materials. He knows that Appian was using these works. I mean Posidonius and Apollonius Molon. On the one hand, they charge us with not worshipping the same gods as other people. On the other, they tell lies and invent absurd calumnies about our temple without showing any consciousness of impiety. Yet to high-minded men, nothing is more disgraceful than a lie. He then goes straight into the ass's head idea that Tacitus also referred to, that the Judeans worship an ass. Appian seems to play on that, harp on that one too. Within this sanctuary, Appian has the effrontery to assert that the Judeans kept an ass's head, worshipping that animal and deeming it worthy of the deepest reverence. It's the common mudslinging stereotype 
for any group you don't like, human sacrifice. When an ancient author strongly disliked a particular ethnic group, the best thing they could think of doing to, to really put them down was to accuse them of human sacrifice. And it recurs over and over again, and obviously you can never trust it has any reflection in reality. It has nothing to do with actual events. And in this one is the story that happened in Antiochus Epiphanes' time, uh, the 160s BCE. Supposedly that king, that Hellenistic king, went into the temple and encountered a guy who had a story about how he's being fattened up to be sacrificed by the Judeans. Human sacrifice. And this is Appian speaking here. Finally, on consulting the attendants who waited upon him, the guy who's being fattened up for the sacrifice, the king waiting, he heard of the unutterable law of the Judeans, for the sake of which he was being fed. No, it's the guy. The practice was repeated annually at a fixed season. They would kidnap a Greek foreigner, very important, a foreigner, fatten him up for a year, and then convey him to a wood where they slew him, sacrificed his body with his, their customary ritual, partook of his flesh, and while immolating, burning, the Greek swore an oath of hostility to the Greeks. Greeks, thinking Judeans have set themselves apart from them. And the ultimate expression of that is they've set themselves apart from us so much that, you know what? I bet you they murder one of us every year in a special ceremony. What we're seeing here is Greeks or Romans forming their own identity by labeling and stereotyping others. In the case of Josephus, we're actually seeing a Judean reacting quite expressly. He writes a whole book countering the stereotypes that Appian characterizes Judeans as. In the process, if you read through, Josephus also has his stereotypes for the Greeks that he starts raising uh, to put down the Greeks in order to raise up the Judeans. And so we're seeing the two sides of this whole ethnic rivalry uh, that's going on and the whole process of identity that is involved.